Last week we talked about distractions and how people get distracted from things that are important sometimes. And I shared an experience uh, or an experiment about a clown riding on a unicycle. Some of you will remember that. Across the college campus and a clown riding on a unicycle, you know, is a little bit out of the ordinary, but maybe not on a college campus. Researchers found that three out of four people talking on their cell phones encountered the clown, but they did not see the clown or they couldn't remember seeing the clown later when they were asked if they saw anything unusual and they heard about the clown. They were distracted. I'd like to show a brief video this morning to see the power of your observation. So uh, I want you to watch this video very carefully and make sure you see, follow instructions, okay? Let's see if we can see the video. The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it, but did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. And that's the monkey business illusion. Okay, how, how many have the, seen uh, the original monkey business uh, video? It. It was created in 1999, and then this was redone in 2010. So some of you had seen it, and you were looking for the gorilla. By the way, how many of you... Now, here's the thing where you... One thing is to be distracted. The other thing is to be totally honest. How many people missed the gorilla the first time through? Okay, very good. How many people missed the changing of colors of the background? Quite a few of you. How many people missed the person on the black team going out? Okay, it's kind of scary how much an eyewitness can miss uh, in, in watching uh, something happen. Um, thanks for your honesty. There's probably a couple of you who weren't sure what you saw, so you didn't raise your hand. Um, the leaders of Israel, we talked about this last week, the leaders of Israel had become distracted in the first century. They were distracted by religious things. They were distracted by their own religion. 
And there were three very important things. And by the way, these are related to the charges against Stephen because we left Stephen off in Acts chapter 7 defending Christianity before the leaders of Israel. And and he has been charged with three things. And there were distractions for the leaders and they relate to the land, the law, and the temple. These are extremely important. Um, The land was the promised land. It was given to Abraham. And it is important in the Old Testament. It is important to God's people. And they were given instructions. If you obey me living in the land, I will bless you. If you disobey me living in the land, curses will come upon you. They were given the law, the law of God. This is very important. It included the Ten Commandments, and if you add up all the commands, there were 613 in the law God gave to Israel. It was called the Law of Moses also. And then the temple. The temple was very, very important. It was the place of worship. It was a worship space designated to be in Jerusalem where the true and living God would be worshipped. It was the only place in the universe where people could make animal sacrifices, where Offerings could be given to God uh, in compliance with Old Testament law. So this became so important, the land, the law, and the temple, it became so important that sometimes these things got placed ahead of God. They became more important in their relationship with God originally. Um, In fact, it became so important when you think about this. It became so important that when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, crossed their path, stood right in front of them and spoke to them, they missed it. They they couldn't perceive it. They had no spiritual discernment when it came to this. So... In Acts chapter 7, Stephen had been arrested. He's standing right now in Acts 7 before the Sanhedrin. That's like the Supreme Court of Israel. There are 70 religious leaders and the high priest. And uh, so Stephen now, in in the message this morning, gives the uh, second half of of, uh, his defense before the leaders. And before we look at Acts 7, I want to remind you of one thing as it relates to the book of Acts, because it's very important to what's happening today. Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This takes place uh, in the beginning of the book. Jesus had been resurrected from the grave already. Easter has passed, and he is uh, ready to ascend in heaven, and he will sit down at the right hand of God after this, after the ascension. These are his final words that we have recorded to his disciples, but you will receive power. These are his, his uh, 11 disciples, maybe other disciples present, but we know the 11 are there. Judas Iscariot already has hanged himself for betrayal. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what the book of Acts is about. God gave instructions to his followers that he wanted them to be a witness. And what what does a witness do? Well, they tell the truth. They tell the truth about what they know. And uh, Jesus wanted his followers to tell people what they knew about him. Who is he? What has he done for you? How has he helped you? That's just, just telling the truth. 
And he says, you shall be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was crucified. That's where the church got its start in Acts chapter 2. Then in Judea, that's a province around uh, Jerusalem. It's like the county. And then there's Samaria, and that's a northern county or a province in the nation of Israel. And Samaria was the place where the, the Jews didn't like the people of Samaria because they thought they were religious heretics. And so they would have anything to do with the people in Samaria, and a Jew wouldn't even walk through Samaria. So this is what Jesus intended. Now, here's something really important. The word witness in the Greek language is the same word for martyr. Hmm. Let's see this unfold. So, um, the church gets its start in Jerusalem. Uh, It explodes on the first day to 3,000 people. And then after that, it continues to grow in Acts 1, and Acts 2, and Acts 3, and Acts 4, and Acts 5, and Acts 6, and in Acts 7. They are in Jerusalem. But the church is a movement, and it is time for the church to move. And we're going to see that in the passage as it unfolds today. Because Jesus wants his story to go to the end of the earth. We're going to start in verses 37 and 38, Acts chapter 7. This is a review because we covered these two verses last week, but they're very important in tying this section uh, this week with last week's. Happens in the middle of the speech. The prophet like Moses, verse 37. This is Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Now, let me just add this. In Acts chapter 6, we, we meet Um, we meet Stephen, and he becomes one of the assistants to the apostles, and he's arrested by the religious leaders. And he he is charged with uh, three basic things. He's standing before this court, and he is charged with blasphemy against Moses and against God. And that charge alone is enough to to be put to death and to be executed by stoning. The second charge is he speaks against the holy place, meaning the temple. And the third charge is he speaks against the law, meaning the law of Moses, the commands of the Old Testament. And so this is why Stephen is being held and being charged. Now we come to verse 37. This is the Moses that Stephen's been accused of speaking against, who told the Israelites... Here it is. We we saw this last week. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. when, When Moses had a meeting with God on Mount Sinai. With our ancestors and he received the living words. The living words are God's word. The law of the Old Testament. So this prophecy... And we saw last week how uh, God worked in Abraham's life. And the significance was Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldee. What's so significant about that? God spoke to him and he was a long way from the promised land. He wasn't in the promised land, yet God spoke. And then he went to Haran for a few years. And guess what? God spoke to him there. He wasn't in the land of Israel. God doesn't need the land of Israel to work, to carry out his plans. He never has and he, it, it's, it will be a part of his plan in the future. 
but he works outside of that as well. And um, then God worked in Joseph's life. And where was Joseph? Well, Joseph got sold into Egypt by his brothers, the patriarchs of Israel. And Egypt, and God worked in Egypt, and God raised up Joseph to be a great leader, and he delivered God's people and brought them to Egypt for safety and protection, and they were there for over 400 years where they were, became enslaved after Joseph's death. And then God worked in Moses' life because Moses was born in Egypt and raised in Egypt and God called him. But that wasn't in the land of Israel. And then Moses fled and he went to Midian. And guess what? That's not Israel. He, was, he had a desert life for 40 years. And then he met God at Mount Sinai in the desert of Sinai. And that's not Egypt and it's not Israel. And for hundreds of years, God works outside of this country, Stephen is just reminding these leaders how God has worked in the past. And then this passage is crucial, Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19. And this is what God told Moses. This is what Stephen is referring to. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. Moses, he's going to be a prophet, and Moses, he's going to be like you. Not just any prophet. There are a lot of prophets. There have been a lot of prophets, and there have been some good prophets, but not like Moses. I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. It's going to be a pretty important prophet. How important was Moses? Well, God used Moses to give them 613 commands. All of their laws came through Moses. God established the Old Covenant with Moses. The Old Testament was established through Moses. This is a pretty important guy. And they revere him. Now, there's going to be another prophet on the order of Moses. Not just a prophet, but a biggie. Moses did the Old Covenant. Jesus established the New Covenant in his blood. He said that on the night of his, before his crucifixion at the Last Supper. And the next day, he will be crucified, and his blood is shed, and the New Covenant is established. Okay? This is a big prophet. Jesus is the prophet referred to by Moses. Okay. That's review, guys. Verses 39 through 43, the failure of the nation Israel. And we have the rejection of Moses, verse 39. But our ancestors refused to obey him, meaning Moses. Instead, they rejected him, Moses, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. This is silly. God raised up Moses in the book, and we see it at the story in the book of Exodus. We covered that. Uh, We did Exodus chapters 1 through 20 in a 21-week series. And we saw how God used his mighty power to, to raise up Moses, to provide for him, to make him a leader. And then God used 10 plagues against Egypt, powerful miracles that displayed who God is. And, and they were against the gods of Egypt. When we walk through that one by one and chapter by chapter, and how God spoke to Moses and how God gave the law to Moses for the people, Moses is the hero And so they got out into the wilderness. Moses led them out of Egypt with all these miracles. And Moses went up on the mountain 
and uh, they rejected him. Verse 40, they told Aaron, that'd be Moses' brother, make us gods who will go before us. For as for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf and they brought sacrifices to it and they reveled in what their own hands had made. So these are the Israelites. They have Moses. They have their great leader. What else could they want? They have the law. They have God with them. He's been, been with them day and night. And Moses has disappeared because Moses went up on the mountain to be with God. God called him up there. And they get worried about their circumstances. And they think Moses maybe got lost. Moses maybe died. So we got to do something and take action. And they have Aaron make them a golden calf. They bring all their gold and ask Aaron to make a god for them because they need something tangible they can see and touch. The Israelites were not always the smartest people. Neither are Christians. Because we sometimes make things that are the created more important than the creator. Exodus 20 verse 3 was the very first command of all the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what God told his people. He says, I want to be first. I don't want you to place anything ahead of me. And right off the bat, they come up with a golden calf. Verse 42 and 43, that God's discipline on the nation. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun and the moon and stars. Some of the people wanted to worship the sun and the moon and stars because other nations did that. And that seemed cool and it seemed to be in and the thing to do. And so God's people got fascinated with worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. So God just let them... God turned them over. He just let them do it. Okay, you want to do that? You're going to miss out on some blessings and you're going to find there are consequences that go with this because you ought not be worshiping the sun and the moon and stars. They're created things. He says, "Did you in Amos 5.25, there's a quote here Stephen used, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? The answer is no, they did not. They did once in a while. Verse 43, you have taken up the tabernacle of Molech. That's a false god. And the star of your god, Rephan. He's, a, he, he's related to the stars. The idols that you made to worship. So Israelite, the Israelites worship the false gods at different times. Therefore, I will send you in exile beyond Babylon. This was a, a judgment on the southern part of the kingdom of Israel would be the kingdom of Judah, time when the north and the south were split. And God sent them into captivity, meaning he allowed Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, to come in and literally remove people from Israel and take them captives and take them back to Babylon. And that was during the time of Daniel had to live through that. He lived his life in um, Babylon. So uh, God eventually got tired of their sloppy attitude and their disobedience. And he promised about five or six hundred years earlier, he says, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, you can expect some curses to come down from heaven. And he, he even said specifically that nations will come in, break through your borders, and they will carry you into captivity. And it's exactly what happened. Thirdly, the place for worship space. The place for worship space. Verses 44 through 50. We've already said the temple was extremely important. 
Let's start in verse 44 with the significance of the tabernacle. Verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. The the tabernacle was like a portable worship facility. It had a tent. It had uh, furniture. It had a fence around it to keep people out who weren't uh, ready to worship. And it was given through Moses in about the 15th century B.C., After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them, and they they took the land from the nations God drove out before them, and it remained in the land, the land of Israel, the promised land, until the time of David. It was part of their worship experience for over 500 years until the time of Solomon. It's where the priests of Israel served. Do we have a picture So this is kind of a reasonable facsimile. It's just a a, a replica display, but a little bit. But they just this was the center of their camp. Hundreds of thousands camped around this tribe by tribe, and this was the center. And there was worship during the day, and um, the high priest would have been here, and the priests were here to serve. This was called the tabernacle. It was a tent. It was portable. They carried it. They had strict rules on how to handle everything and how to set up everything. Verses 46 and 47, the significance of the temple. Look at 46. David, who enjoyed God's favor, asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. David was a great king. He was a rich and powerful king. God raised him up into this leadership position. And David loved God, and David wanted to make a temple. He wanted to make a building for God, a, a house for God. He, he didn't want God just to have to have that, that uh, mobile experience. He wanted, he wanted to build a structure with stone, and God okayed it. And uh, so he wanted to build the, the, te- the temple, but God wouldn't let him. God wanted David's son, Solomon, to build the temple. We have a picture of this. This is like a a replica in Israel today. This is, that's probably like uh, two feet high. But you can go see this in Israel. We don't know. We didn't have, we don't have any snapshots of what the real temple, and there were at least three. This would have been the temple during the time of Jesus. It was a pretty significant structure. Today, there's only part of a wall So, uh, that's a little more permanent structure. And here's the point. There's great, great pride in this structure because God is there. And God did meet them there. But he also departed from there because of their hard hearts. So, uh, Verses 48 through 50, the futility of putting God in a box. Verse 48, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. This is a quote from the Old Testament, so it's nothing new to them. He's just reminding them, God is not limited by a building, and he never has been. And the problem is, is when we place limitations on God, and they did, because they sort of kept him in the building. And, you know, they knew better. They knew the scriptures, but yet they exalted this... uh, this physical structure 
and as if it is way more holy than anything else. And uh, it became dangerous. They began to sort of almost worship the, the space. A prophet says, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, Heaven is my throne, God speaking. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will be my resting place? B, uh, has not my hand made all these things? God is the creator God. These are all created things. How can they be a house for him? Now, God wanted the temple because he made a way for them to worship. But it wasn't like this is what the human race is going to do for God. Um, and here's what Stephen says. Um, We'll go on to verses 51 to 53. The charge against the nation Israel. So Stephen's going to respond. He's going to make a charge against the nation. First of all, verse 51, they have, a, they have calloused hearts. Stephen says, you stiff-necked people. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? You know what? He's quoting God. God said that about the nation for their behavior, for some of these very same things. And Stephen is speaking as a prophet. He says, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. These are words that God spoke in the Old Testament, that Israel's hearts and their ears were uncircumcised. Literally, they're circumcised people because male children were circumcised on the eighth day. That was a physical thing. And it identified them with God's promises. And they were right about that. But their hearts are uncircumcised. And, and their ears are uncircumcised. What do they mean? It's like their hearts have an extra layer of flesh over them that causes their hearts not to be tender toward God. Or their ears have an extra layer of skin so they don't hear when God speaks. And the idea of hearing in, in the Old Testament is you, when you hear, you obey. There's no distinction between hearing and obey. What we do is we hear, and then we think about it and decide, should we obey or not obey? In the Old Testament, the the concept of hearing, you don't hear until you obey. That's the concept of hearing. And then Stephen says, you're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Um, Over and over again in the Old Testament, God's people, the nation Israel, strayed away from the true and living God. Verse 52 They have killed their own prophets. Verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? And many times in the Old Testament, we could trace this through uh, God's people. They they, uh, disliked when when God sent a prophet and spoke the truth. And they tried to ignore him. They sometimes tried to kill him. Uh, They didn't like the truth. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Isaiah is called the great prophet of the gospel. There are so many allusions and scriptures in the book of Isaiah that refer to Jesus Christ in his first coming as well as his second coming. The righteous one in Isaiah 53 is Jesus, the Messiah. And he's saying to the Sanhedrin, this is the very same group that made the decision to crucify Jesus. And he's saying to them, you are the ones who murdered the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You've killed the most important prophet. 
the righteous one, the Christ. And you've crucified him beyond the gates of Jerusalem because that's what they were supposed to do when there was an execution in the Old Testament. They had to go outside of the camp when they were in the wilderness. And then when they were in the city of Jerusalem, they had to go outside the city. There were walls around the city and they had to go outside the city to carry out the execution. That's why Jesus was crucified on a hill. And then verse 53, they have received God's law. This is the final charge. That they've received God's law without obeying it. He says, you have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. The law was given through angels to Moses. They were, it's, the scripture says that the angels are the ones who do the handwriting of God. It's, they are the mediators between God and Moses Moses gets the law and he gets the tablets and he takes the the ten commands on the tablets down to God's people. And he says, you've received it. You got the law. You're the ones with the law. But you haven't obeyed it. And that's going to make them hot under the collar. Verse 54, the martyrdom of Stephen. This is the last section. And we see the outrage, the anger of man. Verse 54, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth. That was a kind of growled. They gnashed their teeth at him. Uh, Stephen was a remarkable Christian leader. And every time he's mentioned, um, at least three times, he's, he's described as full of the Holy Spirit. That was characteristic of his life. That, mean, that means that he was yielded, totally yielded to God through the Holy Spirit. And it means um, that the Holy Spirit was controlling him. Uh, he'd given leadership to the Holy Spirit. And when he spoke, and this is really clear on this occasion, when he spoke, he spoke for God. And this, uh, the leaders were just absolutely fu- uh, furious. They were enraged. They, they, they thought themselves as having righteous anger. They thought that they were representing God. And they thought they were defending God's honor. And what they're going to do is they're just about ready to kill another prophet. James 1.20 just is a good reminder for us. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And the leaders were a perfect example. They think they're going to do something for God. They're extremely angry. They think they have a right to be. But the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Anybody you're angry with? I want to remind you that your anger is not going to accomplish the righteousness of God unless you truly have righteous anger walking in the power of the Spirit and you're defending um, God's Honor and you're, you're defending justice, truly, not just your opinion. Vision of Stephen, verses 55 and 56. This is amazing. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, aha, he looked up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is amazing. He's full of the Holy Spirit. God meets with him in an extremely unusual way. And, and he allows Stephen to see God in heaven. He sees the glory of God. We don't know what that is. It was amazing. 
And then he sees um, the Son of Man. He says, in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Jesus is standing. By the way, all the other times in Scripture, Jesus is sitting. So is this significant that he's standing for Stephen? Verse 56, look, he said, Stephen says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is amazing for two things. First of all, the Son of Man is a term that Jesus used of himself. No one else used this term of Jesus except Stephen right here. And um, the Son of Man is a term that goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. It speaks of the Messiah. It speaks speaks of God being the judge in the future. He's going to judge the nations. And um, let me just read. If I find it here, here we go. Mark chapter 14, verse 60. Jesus was standing before this very same group with the high priest. This was the night before his death. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. They understood that Jesus was identifying with Daniel 7, 13, and 14. That was enough to put them over the edge. Now, what is Stephen doing? Stephen sees it. He sees the reality of it. God shows him this is the Son of Man. He is coming in judgment. And Stephen, I want you to see it. So Stephen says it out loud. And they, they, this is supreme blasphemy. And they want to execute him right on the spot. However, they've got to get outside of the city. Verse 57, 58, the attack on the innocent. At, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. So they had to get him outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And they began to stone him. They were with livid anger. They covered their ears so they wouldn't have to hear blasphemy. You know, super religious. Oh, this is so damaging to me. I've got to cover my ears before I kill this man. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats. These are the witnesses who brought false charges against Stephen. They brought their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. New player introduced. His name is Saul. He's going to become kind of a key player in the book. Verses 59 and 60, the witness of Stephen. Remember, Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. While they were stoning him, oh, by the way, that stone hurt. While they were stoning him, Jesus prayed, or Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus. He's probably looking right at Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He doesn't focus on his circumstances. Stephen focuses on Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And by the way, why is Jesus standing? We can only guess. Jesus stands up to witness what's happening, this injustice to Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the judge, takes it all in. 
And Jesus stands to welcome Stephen because he's going to be there soon. Verse 60, then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him, just like Jesus did. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when he said this, he fell asleep, meaning falling asleep is a euphemism. It's a nice way to talk about a believer's death. He is dead. Now the church on the move. Verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1. Remember the church is a movement. And Saul, there he is again. He's an important player. I'll tell you more later. And Saul approved of their killing him. Saul was not just there. He was in hearty approval of Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. So here it comes. Persecution. Hard times. Pain, suffering, death. All except the apostles were scattered throughout what? Judea and Samaria. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. We have a map. So go down to the south and you see Jerusalem, the city. Judea is like the province, so Jerusalem is in Judea. Then if you go up and you see Samaria is in the middle, and Shechem happens to be uh, an old city, but it's in Samaria. There's a lot of other cities, but it's another province. And then just to see Galilee is where Jesus was raised. Sea of Galilee is an area he was spent his ministry in, and then he was raised in the city of Nazareth. So the gospel is expanding. The church is expanding. How's it happening? Through difficulty, through pain and suffering and hardship. And this church is going to explode. Okay, some lessons quickly. First lesson, be careful about the things that distract you from your relationship with God. Be careful about things that distract you. You know what? It might even be your cell phone. Sometimes your cell phone may keep you from spending time with God. There's lots of things that become distracting to us, things that become more important. It could be things like our career. Our career is important. We're supposed to work. We need to work hard. We need to provide for our families. But our career is not more important than our relationship with God. Good things become important. You know what? The land and the temple and the law were all good things, but they became more important than God. You know, sometimes Christians let their kids become more important than God. Sometimes Christians let their marriage become more important than God. Sometimes Christians let their friends become more important than God, or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Hey, there's good things and important things. It just, Jesus is the one we worship. He's the one who is God. Uh, Second lesson, don't put God in a box like the Israelites did. Don't put limitations on him. He puts limitations on himself because he doesn't violate his own character. For example, he doesn't sin. That would be a violation of his character. Be careful you don't put him in a box. Just that God is just limited to what you think of him because he is not limited to what you think of him. So just be careful with that. Keep growing in your knowledge through Scripture. Thirdly, accept, uh, expect disobedience to bring God's discipline. It's exactly what happened in the Old Testament. They were given to us as examples. He warned them over and over. And so he disciplined his people. We have the same thing in the New Testament. We're warned. 
We can be disciplined. We can, uh, for our disobedience, God can discipline us. 1 Corinthians 11, Hebrews 12, James 1. And discipline is designed to train us and to help us to grow. Fourthly, a calloused heart can lead you far away from God, even though you go to church every Sunday. Now think about this. These religious leaders, they were religious. They had religious activities every day. They hung out at the temple, did all kinds of important things for God. So they thought. And yet their hearts were calloused. So don't be sloppy with your Christian life. Don't be sloppy with your prayer life. Don't be sloppy with your time in God's word. And stop saying you're too busy. Number five, last one. Following Christ may lead to the ultimate sacrifice of your own life. This was Stephen's outcome. It honored God. It pleased God. That is, Stephen's life pleased God. The activity of the leaders of Israel did not please God, but Stephen did. And God uh, will use Stephen's life and death to, to continue to expand his church. Persecution has happened throughout history to focus on living for Christ and not for self. Because we just like to be sloppy and do what we want to do and have a little bit of God. Uh, We have a tremendous, uh, we've had a tremendous, right here in the U.S., we've had a tremendous period of history of peace and safety. You know, it's great to live in America. Not many people have been put to death because they're Christians. But we're not guaranteed that that's going to last. It's not always going to be that way. And right now around the world, as you probably well know, people are dying because they're Christians in many different countries. We should not be surprised. And I guess the best thing we can do is to live each day and to walk each day as it could happen to us. And here's the thing. Jesus died for us. He gave his life so that we could live. And now there is an exchange where we learn to, we give our lives back to God as a way to say thank you, whatever he wants. That's why he died. He died so that we could live, which is also about dying to self. And he wants all of you, and you may never have to face any pain because you're a Christian. It's up, it's up to him what's going to happen. Can you trust him? That's what it's really all about. So today we're going to share in a time of communion. So I'd like to ask the worship team to come and those who are going to serve us. And let me remind you about communion. Why do we take communion? We were commanded to by Jesus. He wants us to remember him. He wants us to remember his death. Because We just have a tendency to make other things important in our Christian life. And we think, this is really cool, and this is really cool, and I want to focus on this. This is a cool idea. There's a lot of cool ideas in Scripture. But Jesus is the central. It's his death on the cross. Our communion is open to um, anyone who considers themselves a follower of Christ. I want to take a time of prayer. We're going to thank God for the bread and the cup. And uh, Scripture says that we, before we share this time, we should examine our own lives. So let's do that. Let's just let's bow in prayer and uh, talk to God from your own heart. Is there any unconfessed sin 
in your own life? Anything you need to talk to God about, to deal with it according to truth, to ask his forgiveness? Have you put something ahead of God, a person or a thing, your career? Are you willing to give your life totally to God? Jesus died for you. Are you willing to give yourself back to him? Just your own choice. Just say, Lord, I'm willing to submit. I'm willing to do whatever you want. I want you to lead my life. Any relationships that are out of order that you need to deal with? Unresolved anger, unforgiveness. Talk to God about that. Is your thought life okay? Anything you need to confess to God? God, I'm so thankful for forgiveness. Thank you that Jesus died and paid the penalty for all our sins, for for all my sin. I thank you that you have made a way that when we sin as believers, that we have a way back to you, and that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. Thank you, God. Thank you that we have that promise, and thank you that I can say because of that promise for everyone here who has been honest with you and confessed their sins, you've forgiven them. They're cleansed. You're purified from all unrighteousness. Thank you, God, for forgiveness. We thank you uh, for the bread that represents the body of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. They remind us of his sacrifice for us. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. So whenever you're ready, you can um, come up from your seat, come to one of these stations, get the bread and the cup, and you can go back to your seat, and you can just uh, partake whenever you are ready. It says, for often as we eat this bread and drink this cup... We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So even taking communion together is a witness. It's a witness to everybody in this room that we are followers of Christ, that we intend to follow Christ. That's our intentions. And so let us go from here and follow Christ this week. Let us be ambassadors for Christ. We are witnesses, and that means let's just tell the truth. You can only tell the truth about what you know. You can't tell the truth about what you don't know. So tell people what you know as you have opportunity. Thanks for being with us uh, today. Next week will be in Acts chapter 8. God bless you all. And by the way, we should have a place for you to put the cups on your way out. So God bless you. We're dismissed. Lift up your shoulders, child, breathe in. Carry